My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Now, today's guest really needs no introduction, but guess what? It's my podcast, so I'm going to give him one anyways. And that guest is none other than Ross Beatty. Ross, if you have not heard of him, is one of the most successful mining entrepreneurs, investors, company builders, explorationists of our time, and quite likely of any time. He has run and sold successful exploration companies after making discoveries. He has redeveloped and sold old assets at massive premiums. He has created and still sits at the head of highly profitable, functioning, operating mining companies. This is something very, very, very few people are able to do in this industry and he has made shareholders literally billions and billions and billions and probably a few more billions of dollars along the way, and he's also made himself some money. Now, if you Google Ross's name, um, you're going to find a lot of articles, a lot of interviews with Ross where he talks about these past successes, where he talks about the companies that he's involved in today. So I wanted this conversation to be a little bit different. We get into depth on what is it that Ross is actually doing that has allowed him to remain at the top of his game for literally decades. We talk about who should be a mining entrepreneur and what are the skill sets and equally importantly, what are the personality traits that it takes to succeed in that role. We talk about who should be part of a management team, who is better off having a job in this sector as opposed to starting their own company. We talk about how to expose yourself to luck in this sector. This comes down to things like having high energy and the ability to look at a lot of things, being really obsessive with travel and getting out there and getting new experiences and meeting new people. We talk about the things that investors need to look for when they're investing in a management team, when they're looking at assets, when they're looking at the strategy of a company. We talk about how first-time and experienced entrepreneurs and company builders can succeed in a bad market and the importance of using other people's money. We get into such a wide array of topics, I'm going to stop going through them now. Suffice it to say, Sitting down and talking to Ross for an hour was really a bit of a masterclass in what it takes to succeed in the mining industry. This is going to be so valuable for both entrepreneurs, people working at companies and throughout the sector, and investors at home to really get a bit of an insight into someone who has mastered his craft in this space and really understands how this business works and what it takes to succeed. So, without further ado, let me please introduce Ross Beatty, the chairman of Pan American Silver, and of course the chairman of Equinox Gold. 
Ross, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you. So you are the chairman of Pan America Silver. You are the chairman of Equinox Gold. You were the founder of the Lumina Group. Uh, I think you've sold something on the order of 12 companies by now. Mm-hmm. And you know we could spend probably the next 20 hours talking about the details of all those and and reliving history, but I know you've, you've done <laughs> a would, lot of it that. It would also bore your audience. <laughs> so what I was hoping we could do over the next hour is sort of get into more of the principles and the philosophies that you've applied to, to do those things and which have guided your career to date and sort of still guide the, your career and keep you motivated and excited about the mining industry. Sure, absolutely. Let's Let's go at it. So I guess before we start, uh, I'd like to, uh, I didn't realize until the research process of this that you and I are actually sworn enemies. Oh. Um, you're, I'm a proud graduate of the Camp Bourne School of Mines uh, as a Canadian over there, and you were a graduate of RSM, right? The Royal School of Mines. Well, sure, but I did a master's degree there, so I kind of kept away from the noise of the <laughs> undergraduate rivalries and so on. You weren't in the, the <laughs> bottle match or any of those no. things like that. So that kind of leads me... Um, to my first question, and when I was when I was reading about a lot of the work you've done, it seems from a young age and until today, a lot of your career has been interspersed and integrated with travel, and that seems to be have been a huge passion for you. Oh, for sure, I've always loved travel. Uh, I'm I'm one of these kind of personalities that's very impatient and uh, and restless, and for some reason, I just love to move. It it hardly matters how. It can be, you know, hiking, canoeing, driving, flying, train, hitchhiking, you name it, motorcycle, uh, cycling. I, I just like to move and, and visit new places and, and get new experiences. And, you know, some people are steady people. They go to the same place every day, eat the same thing at the same time with the same friends, in the same room, in the same seat. Uh, I'm exactly the opposite. <laughs> it's just how I'm built. So you do see often that this is a bit of a characteristic amongst the serial mining entrepreneurs. I think uh, I heard one of your contemporaries say, I think Robert Friedland, that he he credits sort of relentless international travel of one of his keys to success. Would you say that that's something that was the same for you and that's been a big part of that? Absolutely, uh, without a doubt. Um, traveling, you know, I've traveled all my life, and that included a lot of travel when I was young. I, I took a year out between third and fourth year university. I went down to South America, basically hitchhiked all the way through the country from Vancouver all the way down to the bottom of South America, and trains and buses. But I did that when I was 21. I spent a year traveling through Asia the hard way with a backpack and, and, uh, and one set of clothes, and uh, almost a full year doing that after I finished a year in London to get a master's degree. I mean, I, that was all stuff before kind of my, my career. But even when I was in my early years in, in, in exploration, uh, you know, in the 70s, I worked all over the place. I worked in, uh, in, in Africa, in, in, in all over the States, in Canada, in Alaska. Um, I just traveled a ton. And when you travel, you see, it, I just think it informs so much of, of how kind of business is done, and certainly the minerals business especially, um, but a lot more than that. It, it teaches you a lot about people. It teaches you to be more patient, I think, with people and and uh, and understand just human differences and human similarities. And so I just think it, it makes you a better uh, business person a better, and a better human. 
would you say it added the most value for you as a business person or as a geologist? Because you hear a lot of geologists talk about um, sort of building up that mental database of rocks and of outcrops and of deposits and seeing tens and hundreds and thousands of them. And once they've been able to do that, they're sort of able to recognize the patterns. Or would you say it's it's been consistent through everything you've tried to do? Yeah, you're talking more about a, a geologist geologist. And, and I wasn't one of those. I mean, I was a good geologist. I loved geology. I did very well at it. Uh, but I just didn't have the patience to stay as a geologist. I, I just, you know, had this had this irrational urge to build companies and be an entrepreneur. And that was informed right at the start of my career when I started my first company. As soon as I finished sort of my last year of the three degrees I got, I, I knew I wasn't going to be doing any more education. But I spent 10 years doing education in the 70s. And in the 80s, it was time to work. So I formed BD Geological, a little contract geology company. Uh, again, I worked all over the world. I worked in New Zealand and in Morocco and in Liberia, Sierra Leone, all over the States, all over Canada, uh, Latin America. I, I just was all over the place and, um, and, and finally built that company to, to a decent size. We had about 33 geologists, I think, at the top. But I realized that was just a, a bread and butter industry and it wasn't, it wasn't the sort of retirement fund you can get running a public company and making a big discovery. Mm-hmm. And, and so... So I got into the business of geology, the business of exploration, looking for mines, and owning chunks of things that we explored. Whereas most geologists, yes, they're incredibly talented people. Often they go through life never making a discovery, never being involved in a discovery, but being very good geologists, being very academic, and and having that library, as you mentioned, of, of rocks in their head. And that's just, you know, becoming excellent professionals and thank goodness there's excellent professionals that stick doing what they're doing because I rely on people like that so what is it that you think made you take that jump or sort of take that trajectory from pure instead of pure geology into the business side because it's a jump that few geologists have made well yeah I mean it's just in my DNA I I can't uh, I can't uh, tell you why uh, these are cosmic questions uh, but it, they just happen, and and some people are good at them, and some people aren't. And I always tell young younger uh, students, particularly when I'm speaking to them, you know, is is to look at yourself in the mirror when you're trying to figure out what you want to be. And if you don't have that impatience and that and that uh, kind of aggressive desire to, to 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 be building things and changing things and moving all around the time and 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 trying to create new things all the time. Instead, if you're a good employee, then do what you're good at. Be a good employee. And because most people are like that. There are very few people who are cut out to be great entrepreneurs. On the other hand, if that's what really drives you, go for it and good luck. But try to figure out what you're good at and then and then chase that that skill set. I read uh, an interesting quote the other day by one of these Silicon Valley titans and he said something like the only people um, who should be entrepreneurs are the people that can't survive doing anything else. Well, that that's not a bad that's not a bad expression. I mean, I could have survived doing other things, but the the truth is, for my very first job, I knew I wasn't cut out to be an employee. It just wasn't in my nature. I'm short. I'm, I'm very, uh, like I said, impatient. I'm not very tolerant. I I love uh, driving my own bus, and that's just again who I am. And it's. It, what I've, what I've, you, you also asked, you know, that there's entrepreneurs that, that maybe have that, but just haven't been that successful. I've been quite successful. And I really credit a lot of the success, quite frankly, to both having that innate 
DNA as an entrepreneur, but also being extraordinarily lucky. Extraordinarily lucky both in discovery and in timing. Chasing my dreams in times which have been positive times, times that you're able to finance in, increase value, make sales of companies, you know, execute those kind of business plans rather more easily than in really tough times where it just doesn't matter how smart you are, what you try mm-hmm. to do. If the market's against you, it's just impossible. And, and so I've been kind of a combination of having the energy, which I have a lot of, energy, impatience, and, uh, and, and having a tremendous amount of luck. So you're actually burning through all my notes here. I have notes on energy, <laughs> thinking at scale, uh, th- the the role of luck. So <laughs> uh, I actually do want to delve into that one because I think mining is an interesting industry because in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, it's really easy to start a mining company at the right time, and it's almost impossible no matter how good you are at the wrong time. And a lot of people who listen to this podcast would love to start a mining company. And, uh, you know, I personally know a lot of geologists who your career is like the ideal blueprint that they would love to follow. And <laughs> now my, my, my sympathies. Yeah. But that, and that's an impossible thing to do. But if people are in this market now and they do have that entrepreneurial drive, do you have any advice for managing that in a bad market where money's hard to come by and it's not easy to, to get things off the ground? Yeah, I, I would say... Um I mean, I'll give you an example. My very first company was, was, was a company called Equinox Resources, which I started and took public in 1985. And, you know, that was a bad market. That was a really tough market that time. There was no money around. So I, you know, I did the, the usual friends and family and went to everybody uh, that I knew, my, my mother, my, you know, my brothers, everybody, to, to put money to this. There was no money in the market. I, I raised a grand total of $145,000. And, uh, and netted $110,000 on our IPO and proceeded to blow it on a drilling program in, of all places, Liberia, where I had done <laughs> quite a bit of work as a consultant or a contract geologist and found this great gold deposit and, you know, bought a drill, hired a driller, shipped it over to Liberia, did the first drill, diamond drilling program in the history of Liberia. And it was a complete disaster because the country fell into a complete mayhem and chaos, and we were lucky to escape with our lives and left everything there and fled. Uh, so, so... At that time, though, you know, there was no good market. I just, I was able to somehow get through those tough times and, you know, use use approaches in a bear market that I didn't use in a bull market. So, you know, you have to have a business plan that really is realistic in the market you're in. In the tough times, use other people's money. And I don't mean other shareholders of yours' money. I mean other companies' money. So you can still build a business. You can still go out and acquire properties and hustle around and, and, and you know, put, put projects together. And they're a lot cheaper in, in bad times. And then find large companies who are always looking for exploration projects. They always have budgets. Um, and try to take some of their money off of them and, and, and explore on your projects. And mm-hmm. you have to have deals, you have to have joint venture agreements and option agreements, and you've got to grind away on those. And, and it's a numbers thing. You know, this is a high-risk business. Most of those projects are going, to, are going to be dogs, but every so often you'll find one that becomes something significant. And if you have the staying power to live through those and... and, and do enough exploration that on different projects that you can find that one that's going to jump out of the pack and become a winner. That's how you make the success. And I had that. Uh, it, it takes both staying power. It takes 
a lot of work, a lot of grinding, um, and it also takes luck. So the old story is true, though. The harder you work, the luckier you get. And, and then if you're exposed to luck on, on dozens of projects, I mean, if you buy 100 lottery tickets, you're probably going to win the lottery at some scale on one of those. If you similarly have 100 good exploration projects, 99 might be dogs, but you might get lucky on that last one. So keep going, uh, keep hustling, try to use, you know, try to survive by using other people's money in tough markets. Because once you make that discovery, that's going to set your career. And it certainly did with me. I made one big discovery um, and, and bingo, it, it was really the, the thing that, that allowed me to carry on and start Pan American and start all the other things that have, have, uh, have been successful for me. Um, and the other thing is, you know, don't get too in love with projects that really are kind of dogs, because then you burn mm-hmm. away all your energy and time. And and apropos of that, um, don't waste your time on little projects. Small is not is not beautiful in this business. Well, you do. You occasionally see this with management teams who spend years or sometimes decades on mediocre projects. That I see it all know, the time. They're great geologists or engineers or accountants yep. or whomever, and it's just there's not the scale there, or there's not the whatever it is that it's missing to, to do that. So something I, I've thought about a lot and something I've noticed in people who are very successful in this space is that they find ways to expose themselves to many, 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 many things. Yep. And then they are spread kind of thin, it seems, from the outside until one of those things kind of has that spark of it's going to work and then they're able to, to focus very intently on making that thing a success. For sure. That is totally uh, an accurate statement of, of, of how things have been for me. Um, there is one other overlay that, that has worked for me in these, in these public companies, um, and that is um, the importance of, a, of an income statement somehow. Uh, in, in, so in my career, I guess I've been, had 15, I think it's 15 public companies, plus or minus, and 12 of those have been, uh, sorry, 11 of those have been pure exploration companies where you, you know, the business plan is to go out and uh, acquire a project, make a discovery, add value by drilling it and doing economic studies and de-risking it and then selling it. So I've done that many, many times. And that business plan is, is a strict one, which we followed very well. We had enough luck and success on those projects. We were able to do those fine buyers and, 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 and sell them. The other four companies uh, have been operating companies, and they're the ones that I guess I'm most proud of because they're they're tough. They're they're things that you know when you build an operating company, you you've got a you know you've got a big payroll usually, and you've got to meet meet that, and it's it's a lot of stress. But boy, when it works, it's it's really uh, really incredibly rewarding because then you've built an enterprise that 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 builds mines and and. Or, and or in the case of my renewable energy company, creates renewable energy projects that, that are long-term, some, some potentially you know, permanent. And, and so you're creating enterprises there that generate immense amount of value really for society. Uh, so it's been very satisfying to me to be involved in these mining operations. And so the four, each one of those four companies, at the very start of, of the, you know, within the first sort of year or year and a half of those companies, I went out and bought an operating business. Um, in, in Equinox Resources case, we had, a, we had a small stake, a non-operating stake in a gold mine in Nevada. That gave us a balance sheet, and that attracted a whole different group of shareholders who wanted a company that was an operating company. Even though it was tiny, it had that, that balance sheet and that income statement. Plus, it had all the exposure to exploration success. I did it again in Pan American, which again was focused on being an operating company. First year, we, we bought a mine in Peru. It was a crappy uh, 
high cost, uh, very difficult, uh, narrow vein mine in Peru, but it gave us that, that start as an operating business. So we weren't just simply a high risk, high return exploration business. Uh, Altera Power, the same thing. We got, a, we got a geothermal project in Nevada, another one in, in Iceland, and bingo, we were up a, a, as an operating company. And then with Equinox Gold, the, the more current project that I'm working on, company that I'm working on, you know, we've, we're in, we've been in operations from almost from the get-go. It took eight months, and, and, and we acquired an operation in, in California, and we've now built another one in, in, in Brazil that gives us a second mine. So that's, that's one strategy for sort of an operating business that, that I've, I've followed, and then the other strategy on the exploration side is to simply to find a project that's big enough that the majors will want to own someday and, and stick to that focus and, and you know, Make sure investors know where you, where you stand, what your plan is, and and then stick to it. So, I'd like to ask, how do you decide which route you're going to take? Does it have to do with the asset or and the team involved? Uh, does it have to do what's what go, with what is going on in the market at that time? You know, if you're going to go out and you want to start a gold or a copper or a silver company, all of which you've done, why is one an expiration play and the other one's an operating company? Well, it's. It, for me, the uh, it's all about the mission. Uh, the very first company I had, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I'd never done this before. I had absolutely no money of my own. I invested, I think, I think uh, two thousand dollars in the in the uh, in in seed shares to, to build the company, and then and then every time I made some money, I bought some more shares, and eventually I rolled my contract company into Equinox for shares. So I eventually built up a decent enough position, uh, but. You know, I started with no money, no idea what was going on. I blew three years of that company's life, three years out of the out of the nine and a half years that existed, working on a fifty thousand ounce a year, uh, sorry, fifty thousand ounce total resource gold deposit in California, which you know we we took three years to permit, and we finally got the permit. It was going to run for three years at fifteen thousand ounces a year. And I look back on that, I can't imagine what was I thinking. Why did I waste all that time in such a such a non-material, immaterial project is that. Um, and, and so that was a learning curve thing. But I don't know what drove me in that first company. Uh, really, I was just trying to build a build a company. Um, and, and I was scrambling around. Everybody knew me then. You know, I was racing around like a mad goose all over the place. I had platinum in Canada and, and lithium in Nevada. I mean, I was looking for lithium in those days, believe it or not. Gallium up in northern, northern BC, gold in Liberia. Uh, all, all manner of was crazy. this all in the same company? Yeah, it was all in Equinox. <laughs> okay. I had this little gold mine in in, in uh, Nevada called Buckhorn that was a, a non-operating, sorry, a non-operating uh, interest, but it was an operating mine. Cominco and the other seventy-five percent. Um, I was running around the, all over the place in Nevada looking for gold, and and then I started a zinc mine in in Washington State that the that we we built while the zinc price was high. As soon as we opened it, the zinc price collapsed. We closed the mine. Uh, then the zinc price took another little head fake run, and we opened it up again, and then it it fell, like, for the next 20 years. It was long. We had to close it down right away. So it was just, you know, all kinds of stupid things we did. And I'm just, out of all of that chaos in that company, we found this deposit called Rosebud, which... Um, luckily, uh, that one asset was what induced Hecla to buy Equinox and free me up of all that baggage that happened in that first company where I made so many mistakes. But fortunately, the value of that one deposit and some of the other assets we had together allowed that company to be sold at an all-time high in terms of the share price. So all of our investors made money, and I came out looking okay and was then able to start a couple of new companies the next day with that 
credibility and it was just so much easier with the second companies. But then, you know, the, the day after I sold Equinox, well, I took a holiday in Disneyland with my kids for a week and came back and started two companies. One was Pan American. Well, Pan American, the mission there was to build the world's biggest and best silver mining company. Well, that means you have to build an operating business if you're going to do that. And so we did. Uh, the other company was some Bolivian gold assets that Hecla didn't want, and I was able to basically buy them for nothing from them because they were going to drop them anyway. And I took those on because I thought we could develop those and somebody might want to buy them. Uh, and sure enough, a couple of years later, we, we, we sold those projects to a company called Gragas, which formed a new company called Vista Gold, and Vista Gold is around to this day. So, you know, that, those were, that, that's an example of two different business plans, really. One is an exploration, add value, sell business plan, which is Bolivian assets, and the other is a built, let's build a real company, an operating business, and go at it as, and tell the world we're going to do that, and then, you know, cross our fingers and hope we can have the success and the luck and the financing ability to actually do that. The, the important thing to understand is that each one of those different business plans requires a very different strategy. So for an exploration team to say, well, we're going to go and build a mining company on this asset without any skill set to actually do that is a, you know, they might be able to do it, but it's a bit of a leap of faith. It's much easier to say we're going to build a, uh, we're going to explore this property. If we find something, we're going to sell it to a major or sell some to somebody for value add, uh, and 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 go out and do that. Um, similarly, if you're going to build an operating company, you've got to have the horsepower to do that. You have to have a lot different brain. You can't waste your money on these high risk projects. You have to have good engineering skill sets, uh, financial skill sets. Uh, financing for, for big mines or any mines are, is, is a whole different thing than financing a bunch of drills in the ground. So you, you have to have the team and the, and, the, and the strategy that reflects the business plan that you're trying to, to build. And after that first company where I had none of that and I just kind of built it up through the school of hard knocks, mm-hmm. after that I kind of learned how to do it. And, you know, I, I was able to, to pull it off multiple times. What made you, I guess, have the confidence to go into operations after it sounds like you'd had a bit of a rough go in that in the in Equinox, well, um, call me stupid. I don't know. Uh, I, I I can't answer that. It, again, a lot of what happens in one's life is just kind of manifest destiny. It just it just happens, and you know I don't know what's going to happen in three years. And I I was so busy running around uh, in those early years. I, it's like I just didn't know where I was going to go. But I just knew that if I had enough enough irons and enough fires one of those irons was going to come up and become a, a, a good, solid flame that would, that would burn brightly. And, and sure enough, it happened. I didn't know which one, uh, but I knew if I, if I kept at it and had, had lots and lots of, as I said, lots and lots of lottery tickets, one of them would, would, would pan out, and, and that, that happened. Now, now, of course, again, you've got to live through these cycles. So some cycles, if you do that, are very hard to finance in. You've got to do joint ventures if you're going to be sustainable, and others, if you have a bull market, oh, my goodness, there's more money that's thrown at you than you can spend sensibly, which is why a lot of people spend it stupidly. Uh, and, and again, you've got to treat that shareholder's money like it's your own. And, and if you do that, you'll get a reputation as being frugal and, and uh, careful with people's money, and they'll give it to you again and again as long as you uh, treat it with respect. Have you ever seen anyone be very successful in the mining industry that didn't have very high levels of energy? 
No, no, it's a prerequisite. You can't, you can't be successful in this world, generally speaking, I would say, without having a lot of drive and energy and impatience. And, and I think also the mark of a lot of entrepreneurs, you also have to be fairly, you know, uh, you know let's just say your ego has to be uh, either fragile such that you want to build it up all the time or, or, or kind of uh, bomb-proof uh, so that it doesn't matter what you do, you still do it. Um, no, the great entrepreneurs, I mean, Friedland, London, they're just always on the go. They're, they're super energetic people. I've got a lot of energy. I feel like a slug compared to some of these <laughs> other guys like Lundin and, and, and Friedland. But, you know, I don't think you can do it if you sit around waiting for the phone to ring. Bottom line. Do you think this is something people can learn or be taught? Or no, is this just no. the way you're Like I said wired, at the start, yeah. look at yourself in the mirror, figure out who you are, and don't do something you're not built to, built to do. You've got to try to understand yourself first if you're going to pursue that lifestyle. Now, a lot of people who have that kind of energy just migrate into it. I've just come back from a four-day uh, trip to see four, four operating mines in, in Colombia. And I saw, you know, some examples of some really great entrepreneurs down there who were actually the guys driving these mining projects forward. Yeah. And in the face of quite severe challenges in the last years with, you know, all kinds of guerrilla activity and, and, and all sorts of issues that, that exist in Colombia. So you are the head, the chairman of at least two companies. Um, you don't run the day-to-day -day operations. You have CEOs in place and management teams under them. What do you look for when you want to back a team? I mean, you've put a lot of your own money into Equinox, uh, Gold, the, the new Equinox, uh, and as well as Pan Am. So how do you choose the staff and the people and, and support them along the way? Right. That's, that's only really happened once, the, the Equinox Gold story for me, where we actually combined three companies. I had one uh, and then two others were combined. And we, we actually brought in a team from Equinox, from, pardon me, Trek. It was one of those three uh, startup companies for, for, for Equinox Gold uh, uh, business. And, and I, so I didn't build those teams. I inherited those teams. Mm -hmm. That was a team already in Trek. And they were a solid team. I did work on who they were. They were solid, honest, pleasant people um, and, uh, and had had a history of success. And so I kind of crossed my fingers and hoped that they would work. And that's certainly been the case with the company. Um, they haven't all worked out, and we've we've moved we've we've moved them around a little bit in the first year of the operations. The other three operating companies have all been business, groups that I've built through you know hiring people and working mm -hmm. with people uh, all the way through, uh, it, not people that I've inherited. Do you look for highly entrepreneurial people to run the companies, or do you actually find that the companies are are managed by a different breed? I suppose. Um. You look for somebody, I mean, basically you look for a CEO, and then you help the CEO build his or her team, okay? So that that, that team should be the CEO's team, not the chair's team. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really what I've done in, in, in Equinox. I was the chairman and CEO right the way through from beginning to end. I was fortunate to have this fabulous partner who was the engineer, who was the operating guy, John Wright, and he and I just formed this magical team that... You know, I didn't mess with his world of operations. It was his team and his group 
And I didn't try to get in his way because that was his skill set. And vice versa, he didn't try to mess with my world of business development and promotion and fundraising and, and all that stuff. I did all of that. Uh, and, and John and I just were, had, were this magical partnership. And really, that's kind of how we got Pan American going, too. Uh, and, and John put together the operating team until he retired. And then by that time, the company was pretty well built. And we were able to hire from within and from without you know, positions that we needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the clean energy company, again, I started from scratch, built it up as CEO, chair and CEO, and then I hired a, C- a CEO and we were kind of established. And, and then that person brought their own team in by and by. Some we already had, some he, he brought in. And, uh, and so it, it, it's, it's somewhat different each time. But that's where my experience has come as a company builder. I've also you know, segued, especially after I divested the last of the six uh, or the, or five of the six Lumina companies. By 2008, I was sort of wanting to change uh, and I built the clean energy company. But I also had a group uh, in an investment uh, partnership. I had most of the shares of it. I had 84% of it. But my other partners were the five guys who'd helped build us uh, the Lumina group stories back in the 2000s. And we invested in a bunch of things. So we invested in probably a dozen companies, quite lumpy positions, you know, 10 to 30% stakes. And, and I've continued to do that, much less so since I got Equinox going. But I really love gold, and I fell in love with gold in 2014. And before that, we had big positions in, in lots of companies like Vantana Gold in, in Colombia and, and, uh, and, and various other companies where we were pure investors. We backed other management teams. And I have to say, uh, there were winners and losers in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 th- the guys that really uh, did well were the ones who stuck to their business plan. And, and, uh, and, and even if they failed, even if they did, took our money and, and, and didn't have success with it, that was fine, as long as they did what they say they were going to do. The ones that, that I never invested with again were, were, were groups that you know, said they were going to do X with the money, and they went and did Y. And that was it. You can't do that if you're a, if you're a develop a promoter. Um, so so I've had a lot of different you know styles of investment uh, and and corporate building, and I have to say the strategy really is kind of different for each mm-hmm. each each set. Well, I guess when you're corporate building, you fill a certain role within that organization. Absolutely. When you're investing. You don't want to be there day to no, day, you so don't. you need you're, somebody else to fill You're that relying role. on a team that has already been built that gives you a business plan and an investment strategy, and and uh, and then you have to say, okay, good luck. So I think if I don't ask this question, people uh, will be very angry with me. What are you looking at investing in these days? Where is your fo- Outside of the companies that you're personally running and involved with, what are, where do you want to put your money in the yeah, market space? To be, to be honest, uh, Jamie, I've got... Uh, I've, I've kind of stopped investing in other people's deals. And I stopped that when Equinox got going because, you know, I love building these companies so much, kind of from the ground up. And, and we've got this big picture goal with Equinox to become a million ounce gold producer just as soon as we can, you know, especially sort of our target is 2023. Well, I, I'm hoping we're going we're gonna to get there before then. And that's, that requires a tremendous amount of focus, a tremendous amount of capital. But it's so much fun to, 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 to work on that kind of a plan because if you get there, it's just wonderful. I mean, we, we did that with Pan American. We did that with Altera. Um, so that's really what I'm focused on. Of course, I have other investments, uh, particularly groups that I work closely with um, from, the, from the sort of uh, the last 
10 years, a group we've, we've done really well with, the Lumina Group, which is a, a group of people downstairs in this building. And they had the great Lumina Copper companies, and then they've moved into Lumina Gold, which is, which is developing a big gold asset in Guatemala, which I love, and I'm super involved in that. It, pardon me, in, in Ecuador, which I'm super involved in. A spin-out company called Luminex, uh, Luminex Resources, which again is working on a pile of exploration stuff in, in Ecuador. I'm, I'm, I'm just loving what they're doing. And they've just recently started a new vanadium company called Strategic uh, Minerals. Strategic Minerals? Strategic Resources, I forget. Strategic something. Uh, which has got some great vanadium uh, opportunities in Finland, and they're trying to build those up. So I'm kind of invested in those, active in those, because they're my friends. They're, they're the team that has, have, I've worked with for many years quite closely. Um, and they're doing all the work in those. I'm not even on the board or on, in the management, but I'm in, an investor with those companies. But that's pretty well it right now. Hmm. I'm not really investing in other companies' deals because I've got lots on my plate and I'm having a ton of fun. And, of course, Pan American is still going from, you know, from, from, from great to greater. And, uh, and, and I, have a, I have a full time. And I'm doing a ton of philanthropy as well. I'm, I'm building up my environmental uh, foundation, the Sitka Foundation, uh, very actively. I'm, I'm, I'm on the boards of all kinds of environmental NGOs. So, I've, you know, I'm a busy guy. So let's, uh, let's talk about Equinox, where you're spending a lot of your time these days. Uh, I used to work there, and I was there and just till just before the purchase of the Mesquite Mine. Um, and I, I saw some of the work going into that when I was there. Um, in the last, what is it, year and a half, you guys have gone from being having no producing assets, a, de- a development project in Brazil, uh, a feasibility stage project in California. Now you've got an operating project in California, a feasibility project in California, a uh, project in Brazil that's just poured gold for the first time a month or so ago. And I know you're out there looking for other things right now. What's going on there and what should people be paying attention to when it comes to Equinox? Sure. Well, it's, you know, it's it's the company that I'm for sure working most actively on because it's, it's we have a great management team. Uh, we have a big business plan. I love gold. This is a good time for gold. I'm very bullish on the gold price right now. And when you're building uh, companies in the context of a, of a commodity price that's on the rise, you know, it's it's just a recipe for shareholder wealth creation. If you can ex- ex- execute the business plan, how do you make people money in the gold business? It's no different than any business. You build scale. If if you want to have big exposure, you build big production and big reserves and resources. You build a big company. So that's what we're trying to do. And as you said, we started, uh, the company was listed for trading on December 30th, uh, 2017, just a year and a half ago. Last year, we, we acquired the Mesquite Mine. We ended the year producing about 25,000 ounces. This year, our production should be in the range of 200,000, 230,000, something like that, because we'll have two mines producing, uh, Mesquite and the Brazil Mine, Arizona. Next year, we hope to have the Castle Mountain Mine going in its first phase of production, so we'll produce over 300,000 ounces next year. And that's satisfying growth, but I really think uh, with our, those three assets, we... we we have we have the potential just in those three assets to produce around six hundred thousand if we keep at it and and, and keep uh, keep uh, building building uh, Arizona bigger and Castleman into phase two. That's that's what we should end up at uh, after uh, you know f- say four three or four or five years uh, without a crazy capital expenditure. They're 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 relatively low cost uh, projects and relatively low co- relatively compared to you know really really big ones. Mm-hmm. 
but that's going to build some pretty good scale. And then with some other prudent acquisitions, we, you know, that's where we're going to target trying to get to a million ounces. So it's a really great uh, uh, focus. It's simple. It's clean. It's in a commodity that I think is going to is going to do very well in. Uh, we have a lot of cash flow coming in. We have great financing capacity. We have a wonderful, wonderful te- team of, of managers. We have great shareholders, high capacity for for financing in almost any market. You know, we have this 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 great uh, sovereign wealth fund in Abu Dhabi, Mubadala. They're there at, at nearly eighteen or nearly twenty uh, percent of the company uh, through convertible ventures. Myself, I've got a pretty good balance sheet and can can finance a lot of things. Lucas Landin, Richard Wark. Um, uh, BlackRock, you know, we have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful group of shareholders. So it's it, we've got a lot of horsepower right now to to, to build into that mm-hmm. that scale, and and I'm on a mission to do it because uh, as much as anything, I know it's going to make shareholders lots of money, and it's going to be a ton of fun, and it's going to build a company that's that's you know going to do good things for for places where these mines are these you know mines generate an awful lot of wealth for for societies where they are they create tremendous opportunities for people a uh, lot of jobs uh, schools hospitals infrastructure power roads um, things that survive beyond the life of the mines and if you can do those things while at the same time trying to stay uh, principled in terms of health and safety and environmental protection you know it's 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 a good business you're you're creating good things for society so that's what we're trying to do simple business plan so (laughs) simple business plan but not easy to pull off and there's very few people uh, that have been able to go from scratch or from a development stage project into an operating mining company Um, it is very I mean good assets are very competitive it's hard to get uh, especially when a company doesn't have cash flow, doesn't have, uh, has a higher cost of capital, and they're competing against, um, you know, maybe the mid-tiers that already have it. What were some of the components that you guys felt you put in place that allowed you to go out there and get good assets um, that a lot of people would have wanted? <laughs> well, you know, I don't forget I'm a promoter here, uh, Jamie, and, and I, <laughs> believe me, you know, you've busted me here because you, you've, you've made the uh, subtle point that it's much easier to say than it is to do. Um, I think, you know, I'm kind of lucky because I have enough uh, capital behind me. I can kind of finance almost anything, and therefore the company will never have financial stress. Um, mm-hmm. Never say never, but um, I, I, I really think I can backstop any stress. And that's something that a lot of people don't have. It gets the ball rolling pretty quickly, I guess, that way as well. Yeah, it just it's kind of like a downside risk production. Um but also, I've, I've done this before. I kind of understand how to create wealth. Uh, I know what to look for. Um, and, I, I, you know, I'm not going to say with the hubris that someone else might say that it's easy, because it's definitely not easy. Um, it, I, I just have confidence that we're going to be able to pull it off. You know, we have a good team and, and financial capacity and, and a good eye for value. We are going to try to build Equinox through a combination of organic development and merger and acquisitions. So uh, that also is is fraught with risk. Every country has has risky things that happen, and and so we're in the U.S., we're in California, we're in Brazil right now. Tomorrow we might be in Mexico, or we might be in Mali. Who knows? I mean, we're mostly focused on the Americas, but every country has inherent risk, including Canada and Australia. Uh, governments love to mess with mines. Uh, increased taxes make things more difficult. Um, 
that's why we're trying to build a diversified portfolio so we can be somewhat we can mitigate some of that risk um, but you know you just have to kind of watch what we do uh, we made a very very smart I think smart acquisition last fall of the mesquite mine in California it was the right time the right kind of project for us it offers real synergies the price was low and the and the uh, the the I, ju- I think we're going to come out looking really really good on that on that mining operation so we're looking for more of those and we might get one this year we might not get any we might get one next year we might not get any i can't say for sure because to make deals takes a tremendous amount of uh a tremendous amount of of merging of social issues not just valuation mm-hmm. issues but you know people and it's a lot easier said than done beyond that uh we have great opportunities for exploration uh, growth at Arizona in Brazil. Other lots of opportunities in, in California. Lots of opportunities at the Castle Mountain project in in uh, in California. We're going to build this later this year and next year. So we'll, you'll just have to see see how we do. Um, the model for Equinox, quite frankly, is is Pan American Silver. I mean, Pan American started with nothing. We now have actually we have. I think we have 11 or 12 mines. It's, we have so many, I can't even count them. I think it's a dozen. We have 12,000 employees. And, uh, you know, it's a big company now, 30 million ounces of silver, uh, plus or minus. Um, I think this year we're going to produce half a million ounces of gold and and, uh, and lots of lead and zinc and copper. It's it's become a, a really solid company, and I'm super proud of it. So I'm, I'm going to try to kind of replicate that in Equinox. And that was going to be my next question. In 10 years from now, looking back, is the goal for Equinox to be a, a gold version of yeah. what... I I have to say that's kind of what the game plan is. Where do you think you learned to think at such large scale? Oh, I would say the school of hard knocks. (laughs) Just, just, you know, just being in the, I've been in this business, what now for 30 public companies for, uh, for 34 years. And, uh, uh, it just, uh, just, just doing it. I know a lot of people uh, who've been very successful in this space, um, but they seem to be very successful within the confines of a, of a certain box. And they have a playground, and they're good at that playground. And there's very few people that are able to consistently jump the walls to the, to the bigger playground, and, and again and again. And you've done that in a lot of different playgrounds, from exploration to mining to uh, alternative energy and probably a lot of other things that I'm not aware of, and, and philanthropy for one, which we'll talk about in a moment. Is do you have any tactics or any way of looking at things that help you sort of expand that, or is it just the way <laughs> your brain has been wired? Well, you know, I'm a geologist, so I I get subsurface, you know, reasonably well. I, I understand kind of resource development reasonably well. I've done it a lot. And there's not that big of a difference, quite frankly, between mining and renewable energy development mm-hmm. because you're still dealing with resources. And don't forget, I started out in that game in geothermal. I started trying to build a pure play geothermal company, which I thought, oh, this is easy. This is just drilling holes and developing resources and then and then financing and building and operating businesses you know, involving under, underwater or underground resources in, in volcanic rocks. It's quite different than oil and gas. I don't know beans about oil and gas, and I've never spent any time in oil and gas or, quite frankly, coal, which I find dirty and wrong and everything else. Uh, but but I thought geothermal would be easy. Well, guess what? I fell on my face. Geothermal energy, I blew more money in that than I've ever blown in mining and, and quickly learned. It was just such a tough, tough business. I learned that in two years. And and immediately, you know, one thing I, I will say, I, I learned from my mistakes. I'm a fairly quick, 
quick study. Uh, and if I make a mistake, I shift. And so I still had the strong just passion to build a renewable energy company. But when I realized that it wasn't going to be geothermal power or I'd be going bankrupt pretty, pretty quickly, I morphed into wind and hydro and solar and actually built a big company that was really destined to be bigger and bigger until we got an offer to combine with a big Ontario, a big Quebec company, which we did last year mm -hmm. to build. And, and I'm still with that company. I, I, haven't, I haven't left it. I'm still help, trying to help them build uh, a real business as, as much as I can and a big business. And they are big now. They're big and getting bigger. And it's, it's incredibly satisfying to be involved with, with, with that, that business. So, uh, you know, you know, from perhaps reading uh, that I've had lots of success. Well, Less well-known are the, the dogs that I've had and all the, you know, the flops. I mean, there's been lots of them. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you have to kind of have the good with the bad. But, but again, if you have enough eggs in enough baskets, uh, you're going to, and you keep working hard and, and you know, you're, you're halfway smart and you have some luck, you're going you're gonna to succeed in almost anything, I think, if you kind of get the fundamental business. I don't go into oil and gas because I don't understand it. I do know mining from years and years banging rocks in the bush, working for companies. I really do get how minerals are formed. I've been to hundreds and hundreds of mines. I understand a good mine from a bad mine. I can do quick evaluations and try to understand the value creation in what I see quite quickly. Again, it doesn't always mean these are going to be successful, but it means there's more that are going to work probably than are not going to work. I think there's a lot of young geologists and engineers and people who would love to go out and start their own exploration company, but... They're very scared to dip their toes in the water of entrepreneurship because they're scared a failure will destroy their career, destroy their reputation. Uh, you know, they'll be destitute and unable to replicate this. What, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is failure recoverable? I would say failure is more or less expected in the, yeah. in the exploration game anyways. Totally. Uh, once again, you've got to kind of, if you've got to remember, you can't, you can't, uh, it, it, to me, it's a lot of it's about using other. I said right at the start, other people's money. Uh, if you if you present a project to someone and say, you know, I think I can find gold over here. It's going to cost me a million dollars to do it, and somebody gives you somebody believes in you, gives you a million dollars, and you go out and drill a bunch of holes, and you fail. You don't find anything. You know what? If you do what they what what you've told them you're going to do, they're going to say, oh well. Uh, I understand there's risk. Thanks a lot. And, 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 you know, maybe you can go back to them with another project someday. Maybe you can't, but at least they're never going to be slagging you and making it impossible for mm -hmm. you to raise money somewhere else. Uh, even better, you go to a company that has a big exploration budget and they have to spend that money every year and present them a good idea and, and then they'll, they'll work in your project. And if it's a dog, well, you can, you can still say, well, that was high risk, high reward. But if you find that person a project, uh, uh, pardon me, uh, an asset, a, de a deposit or an asset that 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 makes money and, and is successful, well, they're going to be giddy because they expected failure. It's a great business because people expect you to fail. And if you have success, well, you're, you, you really do stand out. But you can go from failure to failure to failure using uh, capital that is exists to take risk. Company capital, individual capital, it exists to take risks because it's a high-risk, high-reward business. If you have success, you'll get a 10-bagger or a 20-bagger, and that's why people keep rolling the dice in this business. If you stay straight, uh, do what you say you're going to do, work hard, you're going to have one of those winners eventually, and then you're going to be able to replicate that again and again. 
Now, instead of looking at this from the entrepreneur's perspective or the company uh, runners, what about from the investor's perspective? You know, when you're looking to make those big wins, you know, how, how do you approach that? Is it buying a basket of high potential, yep. uh, high it, stocks? For sure. Uh, do not put all your eggs in one basket. Mm -hmm. This is a high risk business. So you look for things that have scale, that things that if you do find something that's going to be big. Uh, little projects are for little people. They're not, <laughs> they're just not, they're not worth investing in. Um, go for, go for, you know, go for the hit, you know, hit, you know, hit for the, hit for the fence. And you're going to get there sometimes. Most of the time, if you, if you swing for the fence, you're going to hit a base hit. But that's okay. Base hits are fine. If you do enough base hits, you're going to go right around the mound. So as an investor, I look for, obviously, good management teams. That's where it starts. Good people. Mm -hmm. People who are honest, people who are straight, people who are hardworking, um, who have vision, who, have, who can communicate well. Those are all ingredients for, for success. And then projects that have scale. And I don't really care where they are. You know, if you, there are some places that are for me are out of, out of, uh, are off limits and, but they, they weren't originally, I mean, I went to Russia for three years and got blown up, but I, you know, I'd probably go back there if I had the same opportunity. It's, you, you can't be too cute when it comes to sovereign risk because one day one country's great, the next day it might be terrible and vice versa. Yeah. So but it's if, hard to even, yeah, predict. it's yeah. hard to be too cute. Look at the geology first and foremost and the people and, and, and try to assess the, the opportunity for them to make a home run. That's kind of the, the bottom line that I use when I'm investing. Um, and, uh, and it's worked a lot more than it hasn't worked. Do you have any opinions about the space or, you know, or even maybe life in general? Where your, where <laughs> yes. Your, where your peers, they look at that and they say, you know, Jesus, Ross, that's crazy. Like they, they think that's a crazy idea, but it's something that you believe <laughs> fully and has, has served you well. Oh, I don't know. Uh, not too many people have said my businesses have been crazy. They, a lot of my peers and friends in the, in the mining business think my environmental passion is crazy and they don't understand it. Uh, I have a lot of views on, on society and the world. And in fact, a lot of that's informed by the fact that I've been everywhere. I've been every, just about every country in the world and many, many times. And and I see certain global problems that we're, that we're facing right now that are, quite frankly, existential threats. And so that's one of the reasons I'm a very passionate environmentalist, because I can, I can separate clearly, you know, my, my mining background and all my mining world and businesses I have from kind of how I view the world and how I view what we're doing to the world. And, and, and you know, I, I'm not a, I'm not a great spokesman for mining uh, or for growth in mining. I certainly am for the fact that mining provides an essential service to an industrial society. We can't do without it, and mm -hmm. to criticize it is usually very hypocritical. But I certainly am not a, a, a supporter of unrestrained mining anywhere, anyhow. I mean, I've just come back from Colombia. I saw some god-awful examples of, of, uh, of uh, degradation, uh, environmental degradation, particularly from these so-called artisanal mines that are just all over Colombia, that are just wrecking the environment. They're, they're putting cyanide and mercury into river systems. They're, they're, there's zero regulation, and, and it's, it's a, it's a, that's where uh, there are crimes against, against the environment and crimes against human health from mining industry that should be shut down tomorrow. We know what they're doing, and we should stop it, but it's politically difficult in certain countries, so it's not done. But, I mean, I could go on for a long time here. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I could make, like, long rants. Uh, 
If I have to choose between mining and the environment, I choose the environment because the environment has to be kept clean for our kids and their kids. If we degrade it too much, guess what? Uh, there's not going to be a foundation of human existence. Yeah, well, I think it is a uh, somewhat popular narrative for certain NGOs and political groups to, to demonize people who work in the mining industry as people who don't care at all about the environment and are just greedy and after profits. And I actually think that's a very false narrative insofar that so many people, and myself included, came into the mining industry because they liked the outdoors, because they grew up camping and hiking and traveling and, and all this. And it is something, I, you know, on site visits and whatnot, I've had a hard time reconciling my, with myself at times because sometimes you go to this phenomenal place and you think, geez, you know, <laughs> it'd be kind of a shame for there to be a mine here. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't yeah. agree more. There's are places in the, in the world where mines are... Uh, certainly kind of logical if you have to have a mine, if you have to support, sustain society with, with metals, you know, they're, they're places with low biodiversity and low social impact and so on and so on. And then there's the other side of the coin, places in pristine environments with, you know, with the, the, maybe just mines shouldn't be allowed to be there. They should be in protected areas. And, uh, and so I very much agree with that. Mm. But but I'm also uh, I'm also attacked a lot personally because I am in the mining business and I and I am an environment passionate environmentalist by people who think that I am hypocritical and and you can't do one and the other at the same time and you know what they can they can criticize me all they want it just doesn't bother me um, I I have a, a, a very clear conscience and I'm uh, I'm uh, following that and uh, a lot of people are small-minded people and they like to attack the messenger or they don't look at themselves in the mirror and realize that you know actually instead of criticizing mines or mining per se they should criticize metal consumption because if you don't consume you don't have demand that drives the need for mines mm -hmm. and the metal price goes down and that stops new mines from happening so it's it's the consumption that people should be going after and it's the consumption quite frankly that's killing our world not just of minerals but of of, of energy resources and of and of food supplies and of you know I could go on and on and of land for, for cities that's what's that's what's really damaging us uh, and that's all about individual lifestyle what you eat what you consume uh, what populations happen in terms of growth in populations all of that is what drives the the quite frankly existential threat to future generations through the industrial society that we are evolving towards what would you like to see in a perfect world the mining industry looking like in 25 years from now well uh, i would like to see mining become more sustainable and i would like to see the economy become more sustainable we cannot have for example two percent or three percent growth forever and ever in a finite world that will lead to collapse it always does in any finite system that kind of uh, continued growth will always lead to collapse so we have to moderate our growth and that includes growth in metals uh, demand and metals supply so yes that's going to be negative to some degree for the future of the mining industry we can't assume we're going to need more and more and more metals we have to go towards more of a circular economy and more mining in better places where it's 
maybe less damaging and maybe not in places where it is damaging. That's kind of my ideal world. We have to move toward more sustain, true sustainability, and we're definitely not there now. What happens when we get there? Well, there might be as many, not be as many jobs in mining, but there will still be a mining industry. It's, mm. It doesn't mean no. It doesn't mean no mining industry. It just means no tripling or quadrupling of what we already have today, which is where we're going in 50 or 60 years at, at present rates. We have to have three times the mines. Well, or five times actually the number of uh, the amount of consumption of a lot of these metals that we have today. And I just can't imagine that in today's world. So I would like to see that to be moderated a lot, and us to live within a more uh, you know, we're consuming too many resources of all kinds, and I'd like to see that moderated. And, I mean, it's obviously no easy question to, or no easy solution to solve this. And is the, does the solution rely, uh, does it come from innovation? Does it come from, I guess I can't really think of anything else. Sure. So, yeah. Well, I, well, I have to say maybe we're getting a little bit off track here because I have these rants on, on you know, on this growth obsession that, that economies have and, and governments have and companies have and everything else and I think we yeah. have to we have to have some s severe looking at ourselves in the mirror to understand that what we're doing to the planet and that we just cannot possibly keep doing this uh, so innovation is very very important and innovation as you well know is happening at warp speed um, and it is causing it is causing changes I actually don't know nobody knows what's going to be the world 10 years from now or 20 years from now uh, but you asked me what I hope it would look like, and I hope it will look like something that uses fewer of Earth's resources of all kinds, and where we have more protected areas where more species can live in harmony with humans, as opposed to in in uh, it being squashed and and uh, and and threatened by them. Um, that's really where I hope we get to. Innovation is going to be a massive part of that. Living cleaner, uh, having better mining less uh, carbon consumptive mining and everything else in society, polluting less, using less water, all of that is what I hope will be the minds of the future and, quite frankly, societies of the future. Less sprawl, more density, fewer people, all these things that make, that are going to allow humans to exist for a lot longer than they otherwise will. You are, in addition to a mining executive, a very committed philanthropist as well. And how are you allocating that capital to help ensure that this sort of thing actually happens? Well, philanthropy, I've always been, you know, I've always, I've never had a great need for money. I, I love tenting and hiking and, you know, cycling and everything. Like, I, I don't live a, a big lifestyle. Anybody who knows me would, I think, agree with that. And my wife, even less so. Uh, and we've tried to teach our kids that. So um, this money that I've made has been, has been kind of accidental. Um, I have quite clearly been obsessed with making money. That's been a driver all along because money is a is a milestone or some sort of a metric of success. Mm -hmm. And so it's an easy one. You know, if a stock goes up, you're, you're successful. If it goes down, you're not. So, you know, you want it to go up. And, and for some reason, I've had this weird uh, kind of desire to, to build these companies into successful companies. And that's that's the mark of success, it seems, to an awful lot of people. Yeah, I guess it's the sort of the scorecard of the game. Yeah, it's the playing. scorecard. Yeah. So, and having made all this money and not having a great use for it, and I don't want my kids to get it particularly. I mean, they'll get a little bit, but but I don't want them to be to be uh, you know the, the sort of famous spoiled brats that that come out of sometimes you know people who focus more on making money than on their kids, and and making their kids good citizens. Um, so what do I do with it all? Well, you give it away. It's pretty simple. You give it away. And for me, it's been easy come, easy go. I have no 
Absolutely. You know, I don't know what I'm giving away now. It's 10 or 20 million bucks a year, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really easy. It's, it's, um, and, and when you give money away, uh, because you have it, I don't want to die with it particularly, um, you have to figure out what you want to give it to. And, and a lot of, there's all the different types of giving and types of philanthropy. You can be a, a shotgun. You can give to kind of everything under the sun. But I choose to give to one specific thing, and that's environmental projects. Uh, because I think, first of all, it's a good thing to focus on. Secondly, I really believe in it. Uh, thirdly, if you do the, if you understand the numbers, less than one percent of all giving goes to the environment. Believe it or not, is that true? Yeah, really? the rest is goes. If you think about it, most people give to people things like yeah. schools and hospitals and churches. Churches get a vast amount of money, um, and and things that tug at people, homeless people, and, and so on and so on. That's where most money goes. Uh, the environment doesn't get a lot, and yet we rely on the environment. And and there are tens, there are millions of species out there that need protection, and that's where I choose to, 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 to put my money to help protect those things that are being so badly hammered by the foot of humans. And actually, it's a human thing that I'm doing, too, because if we don't look after environment, humans aren't going to do very well either. And I don't care how much money gets thrown into schools and hospitals, if we screw up our environment, humans are going to be very badly affected. And quite frankly, we're seeing it right now in a lot of places with this, these climate emergencies. Mm-hmm. That's really, really causing problems in a lot of places and real severe human problems. Uh, so that's where I give all of my philanthropy, do all of my philanthropy, and it's done through a foundation called the Sitka Foundation. It's a public thing. You can Everybody can look at it on the website and where we give and how we give and who do we give to. We I think we're finding 70 or 80 different groups right now, and mostly in Canada, some in, around the world, uh, on, on different things, land conservation, uh, public policy on environmental issues uh, like, like climate change, for example, and, and carbon uh, issues, uh, education, scientific research, that kind of stuff. And, and I just want to scale that up, if anything, because uh, it's really important to me. Okay. Well, Ross, we've hit about an hour now, uh, and I know you got a busy day, and you're probably off somewhere after this. I guess my last question would be, there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are relatively new to investing in the mining industry. They've never had the chance to see a bull market. <laughs> Some of them have probably never made any money in their investments, mm-hmm. but they still are interested in it. Would you have any advice for newish investors in this space and what they should be thinking about, what they should be focused on. Sure. It's not, I mean, it, it's not that magic, really, the, the formulas for success in investing, I think. Timing really is important. This is a cyclical world we live in. And, you know, if you invest at the top of a market like people did, say, in 2012 uh, or 11 or 12, and gold was $1,800. I'm just going to use gold as an example. You mm-hmm. could use the same thing with copper, nickel, you name it, uh, or oil and gas. And if, if you invest at the top of the market in anything involving gold, and the gold price goes down from 1800 to to $1,000 an ounce in the next, say, two or three years, you're going to lose money. The tide goes out. Every single ship is left adrift. Um, if the tide comes in, on the other hand, and you come in at the, you know, at, the, at, the, at the bottom of the gold cycle, and every single commodity is cyclical, it's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fact of financial markets, Quite frankly, all mar- all financial markets are cyclical, and we're going to see, I think, a reckoning in the in the big markets here. Any any you know any day, week, month, or it won't be that long, I don't think, until the 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 
the, the, the big markets uh, have a, have a cr big correction um, because things are cyclical. So get your timing right. That's the first thing. You know, be very, very careful investing at frothy times. That's when you want to be selling. And it's so easy to say, buy low, sell high. It's so hard to do. But that's super important in our business, which is a cyclical business. That's the first thing. The second thing, if you're going to invest in the risky stuff, the junior end, by all means, be diversified. Buy a pot of assets, 10, 12, whatever, and, and try to you know, get things that other people who you respect recommend. There's some good newsletters out there. There's some good experienced financial people. You know, I think of people like Rick Rule, who's had a lifetime of experience making money for people. He doesn't always get it right, but he sure understands the market. Invest through people like that. Um, try to go for size. You know, larger, I've talked about that already. Large projects make, make big gains. Small projects make little gains. Uh, and, and of course, look at the people you're investing in, uh, in, in the companies. Um, if you're looking for operating businesses, it's a lot less risky, but you're not going to have the returns. But you're, you know, you look at a company like Equinox Gold, where we're going to do well, it's, and it's not going to be a 10-bagger. We're going to offer better than average returns because we're building things. We have an incredible growth record, and we're in the right commodity at the right time. And I think we have the understanding of how to create wealth in this type of business that should outperform most other companies. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to outperform. So far, so good. Uh, we won't outperform everybody, but we'll outperform the average. And that's what we're shooting for. If you have diversified assets in that game, uh, good management teams with track records, um, you, you, you should do well if you get your timing right. And I guess from an Equinox perspective, you know, the day will come when these big generalist investors need to start allocating capital to mining, to gold, to commodities. And it's happening right now. They're going to be keeping an eye out. Uh, and that that money is probably most likely going to flow to the people that have done it before and have a track record of success. And they know we'll, we'll be respectful of their funds. And I feel like Equinox is a, is a very good choice for that. Thank you. I agree. All right. I don't think we're going to find a better place to leave it than that. So thank you very much for taking the time today. My pleasure, Jamie. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.